Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. David Chapel, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Paul, thanks so much for having me. I guess we should start with uh, how I connected, or how we connected. Uh, you know my dad, and of, and of course I know my dad. And your, and your mom. And, and so how do, how do you know my parents? Um, well, Larry, a um, couple of reasons. One, sort of uh, Randolph-Macon College related. Uh, of course, your mom was worked there for many, many moons. Um, and your mom and dad uh, have gone to a church that I've We've gone to the same church for a number of years, so I got to know them through that capacity. And your dad, uh, I sort of knew of him as a judge, mm. uh, even though um, we I didn't practice before him in Hanover, but uh, I, I did feel kind of, it was neat over more recent times that I actually, once he retired, I, I cajoled him into coming down and substituting in Brunswick County, where I'm a prosecutor, so we carpooled a couple times made the long trip, and um, so I got to see him in court. I, I purposely made sure I didn't have any cases that day <laughs> or those days. Um, but, yeah, so, I'll, 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 and, of course, I see him at all the RMC sporting events over the years, which is great. So, yeah, when you and I were talking over the phone a few days ago, uh, you you were not happy that you weren't able to go to Fort Wayne to see the uh, know, the final four. I know Larry and Brenda did. They did. <laughs> I saw them saw, saw on television. Oh, did you really? I did. I, I watched the uh, championship game. I, did, I didn't see them. Or maybe I, actually I did see my dad at the end. It, it may have been at least one of the two games in Fort Wayne. I definitely saw them in the crowd. Yeah. Either the semis or the finals. So uh, It's got to be. Hey, they, hey I'm, I'm glad for them. Yeah. <laughs> Happy a, for them. It's a shame that people that uh, wanted to go out there weren't able to make it, but uh, still fantastic that it's, Randolph making one. Yeah. You know, they used to have it in Salem, which would have been so nice. Yes. Um, what, two and a half yeah, hours? So, um, but hey, the, the, the uh, end results all account. So. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely right. All right. So where did you grow up? I uh, pretty much grew up in uh, the Ashland area. Um, dad was a... Um, my dad, Willie Chapel, was a uh, Methodist minister. Um, the Methodists uh, move you around every four years or so. Uh, he had a couple of hitches um, in other areas, but his last, um, um, where he was a pastor last, happened to be in Hanover County, uh, Kenwood United Methodist Church, which is still there, um, Elmont. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where we were from 63, I guess, to 66. Uh, I was in the first grade in 66, and Dad had gotten, um, they were going to move him, as is usual, and our our uh, new destination was going to be Charles City, um, which I'm sure there are a lot of good folks over there, but there's not a lot going on in Charles City. I even, as a six-year-old, I even kind of knew that pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so um, we we didn't go to Charles City because Dad got an offer to teach religion at Randolph-Macon College in 66. I started in 67, so he took that offer, and um, so we stayed in Hanover, stayed in Ashland. We've lived uh, in Hanover, and then we, we lived on campus for a little while, for three or four years. So, But I basically grew up, went to uh, Patrick Henry, or Liberty, Patrick Henry, uh, and then went to Randolph-Macon. So I'm pretty much uh, an Ashlander. I, I imagine you were very happy your dad took the job at Randolph-Macon. Oh, I didn't know a lot about Randolph-Macon at the time, but I was. we, we took a trip to Charles City. Um, and I just remember there was, I remember one country store. That's literally, that's all I remember from our jaunt to, 
but you know the die was cast i thought we were going and then uh you know uh, fate intervened so uh, that uh, might be the only retail in charles city even now it's probably still there and probably still the only store (laughs) (laughs) there's something to be said for a county like that that open spaces wide open spaces uh like i said i'm not casting any dispersions on charles city but i'm happy i ended up in ashland very cool so uh when you went through liberty was it just eighth and ninth grade uh, I hit that on an interim um, a, a kind of a flux situation, too. Um, when I was supposed to go to Gandhi, I went to Elmont um, Elementary. Uh, the first When I was in the first grade, when Dad was at Kenwood, it was the traditional four-room, old-timey schoolhouses. They had a wood stove in each. Um, even then, it was about to become a thing of the past. Uh, that was only for the one year, and then they, they built the Elmont Elementary School, which is still there and functioning very nicely uh, in Elmont. Um, but that was, um, you know, one of those things that um, it, it um, you know, it wouldn't, they had to have a change of, of some sort, uh, right. even back in the 60s. But um, when I, so I finished the sixth grade at Elmont, but then when I was supposed to go to Gandy, which was the next level up in Ashland. Because they were four through seven back then. I right. They, yeah. they were in the process of doing something in, they they had built the, they had just built the new Liberty Junior High. And for some reason, Gandhi was not available that year. I don't know if they were renovating hmm. it or whatever. So when I, I was at, it, it was called Gandhi at Liberty. So for my seventh grade, I actually physically went to the new Liberty huh. school, but it was, it was technically Gandhi for that one year. And then I stayed, you know, then it, everything reverted back. So I was in Liberty, the eighth and ninth grades physically, but I was right. three years in that building. Right, right. Uh, before, you know, went over to Patrick Henry. I didn't know that had happened. So yeah. you're, I mean, you and I are about 10 years uh, mm-hmm. apart. And so 10 years later, the, I was the first seventh grade class at Liberty when they finally went seventh through ninth. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I just remember they would ship in the lunches. Um, at Liberty, I guess, because they may not have even had that capacity yet. But so we would get we would get the styro, the um, styrofoam lunch oh, things wow. brought to so it was it was interesting but yeah we were Gandhi at Liberty I I've Three, never heard that yeah yeah that's uh what a fantastic part of the history to yeah see. yeah I mean well, I, and I can't remember um, what the issue was why our group couldn't physically go to Gandhi hmm. but we ne- I never stepped foot in the um, in the Gandhi. Well, right down, right down the road from Macon. Even though, even even though technically you were at Gandhi, they made well, you were Gandhi at Liberty. So, okay, okay, I'm, I'm I don't have a lot of choice in the matter. So, so when you were a kid, what, how did you spend your time when you weren't in school or weren't doing what your parents were telling you what to do? Uh, I was probably not the best uh, kid. I didn't. Uh, I think the statute of limitations are probably out on most of my stuff. But uh, I mean, I didn't get into any any real uh, trouble. But uh, I like sports. Um, you know, played uh, baseball, basketball, um, never really played um, football a lot, but mainly into sporting um, sporting things. And then it, as I got sort of a little, and I mentioned the thing about being a little in the, in the streets of Ashland a little bit. Now that I'm, uh, I, I, grow, I grew up and became a prosecutor doing juvenile court, it does have some interesting back and forth. <laughs> um, but sort of as I got a little bit older in the childhood uh uh, age group, I got really attached to professional wrestling mm. um, back in the 60s, and uh, that grew a lot as it went into the 70s. But yeah, mainly sports related re- related things. Yeah, I, I played golf. Dad and I played golf a lot. I enjoyed that. Um, played at it. 
Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's a very hard game. Yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, built-in levels of frustration that ultimately I didn't feel like um, I was I was never going to be but so good, so I didn't really take it seriously. So it became a pure recreation thing. But you didn't play until you were a teenager? Yeah, I was probably. Dad started started me off pretty pretty early, but it was probably early teens when I started playing. I'm, I know I'm a natural I'm a natural left hander, and mm. Dad wanted. I guess he had higher aspirations for me. He said, "No, you really the course of the courses are built for right handed players." So he got me these the right handed clubs, which I wasn't really comfortable with. I'm not saying I'd have been good as a lefty, but it was like, "Gee, I'm just I'm just not going to be but so good." But so I, do you play righty or lefty? We play, I ended up playing righty, but I think lefty may have been a little more natural. Wow. Yeah. But I don't know if you remember the old Ethelwood course that was off of uh, what's now 295 in northern um, northern Henrico County, right around the, where the Atlee-Elmont interchange is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, it was part of the Hermitage Country yeah. Club, yeah. Yeah. and we, we joined Hermitage for a while, and we particularly played Ethelwood a lot. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was good bond, father-son bonding. That's really cool. Yeah. So when you were playing baseball, did you bat left-handed? Yeah, yeah. So I you, throw left-handed. You clearly, but should've. I write right-handed. I, I'm just sort of messed up. Yeah, but you, you're you're a dominant lefty for most things. It sounds yeah, like. Yeah, but you're really, playing. other than writing, which I don't write real well, but yeah, really more predominantly left. Huh. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I, if I, I'm your dad, of course I I have hindsight. To, uh, I, I'm giving you some left-handed clubs. They they did exist back then. Oh yeah, yeah. They were harder to come by, but. Um, I just remember that, you know, that you'll, you'll be better off playing right-handed even though you're not naturally right-handed. Okay. I'm going to make it clear. I don't think I'd have been any good left-handed either. You might have been slightly better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, I, I just, just just take, you know, golf, I think at first I just tried to take it too seriously. And uh, we, we would actually go out and play with some Randolph-Macon professors. I remember that oh, vividly. Okay. Yeah. And they have, they have long since uh, left. But some of them took the um, – I, I, well, I know you've heard of Dr. Earl Moreland, who was the president yeah. of the college yeah. back in the 60s. We went out, Dad and I went out um, with one of the uh, religion professors at the time. This didn't stay for very long. But we went with Dr. Moreland. And so there were the four of us playing golf at the old Laurel course, mm-hmm. uh, which is now a subdivision. But I'll never forget, um, um, Dr. Moreland was teeing off. And he just, like, hit a pop fly. I mean, like, like straight up in the infield fly. Which was kind of embarrassing to start with, but unfortunately, the um, the other professor went under, camped under, and caught it, and brought it back to Dr. Morland. <laughs> that I think we, I, even as a young kid, I I, I wanted to be somewhere else. <laughs> that may be why he didn't stay around as a professor so much longer. <laughs> but Dad and I would joke about that over the years. We had several other good. Uh, outings with professors that I think one thing is maybe folks took it a little bit too much seriously. And I did took it too seriously too yeah. at first until I realized I ain't going to be so good. Let's just rip it and have fun. Yeah. I, I didn't play until I was into my young adulthood and I never took golf that seriously. Yeah. I don't yeah. think you can unless you're really good enough to be at some upper echelon or something, you know. Well, you're naturally talented and you're willing to spend eight to 10 hours a day right. like working on your craft. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You, what's your fondest memory from your childhood? Um, well, what would you define childhood year-wise? Under 18. Okay. Um, it's kind of odd. Um, it's kind of hard to put into, um, uh, to define it real clearly. But as I said, I didn't um, 
take a lot of things real seriously. Like I said, I didn't get into, I didn't, I was a mischief maker. Um, you know, I didn't commit any crimes or bad crimes anyway. Nothing felonious. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, I sort of just kind of um, floated through childhood. I mean, I didn't, uh, I'll give you one example. I was, I was a pretty good basketball player and I was good enough at Liberty um, where the Patrick Henry coach wanted me to play Patrick Henry while I was still at Liberty. Mm. One, there was one little problem about it. My grades were so bad at Liberty that they wouldn't let me. Wow. And, you know, at that time it was kind of a downer, but I didn't really um, take it seriously. Um, it wasn't that big a deal. But um, when I got into the 11th grade, um, I, again, was sort of floundering around. Um, I actually, um, you might remember how the report cards were done. Then you take, took them home. You got, well, you, you may not remember, but basically they were, they were subject to being tampered with. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so I didn't do very well. Uh, on this, was, partic- this was the pre-digital age. Right. Oh yeah, very much. This is 1975. Oh. And, um, I was in 11th grade, flunked a, um, a, some, uh, first six weeks, um, got an F. I'm not proud of it, but I just, I doctored it. When I took it home, I doctored it and made it either a B or an A, whatever was B, easy. B's really easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, so that's sort of where I was at that juncture. So I thought I'd gotten away with it. Um, unfortunately for me at the time, the teacher who's actually became a dear friend and she's still a dear friend, um, they did the horrific thing of, without my knowledge, calling my parents for a conference. Um, of course, there was no internet. There was how, no, how dare they? Yes. So it, this all happened without my knowledge until my father came home. Dad came home and told me what had happened. I got busted, basically. And um, from that, that some, a light switch went off. That, was, mm. that not only made me look bad made him look bad yeah uh, he's all, a college professor at this point exactly all yeah. the, all the stuff that they had done for me um and so that was sort of the the um you know something changed and after that um you know i did very well at um the end of patrick henry um when i was at patrick henry although i'd done so poorly in liberty that my grades were so bad even when i graduated i didn't have a very good gpa um and, you know, I sort of blew off the, whatever the, the test is you take, you know, in addition to your grades to get into college. Um, so I couldn't get into any colleges. Mm. Uh, and dad was t- teaching at Randolph-Macon. So I applied there and I only got in, um, I'm convinced because of dad, right. um, which, you know, I'm very grateful for. Um, but again, I felt bad about it. And um, in fact, the admissions director at Randolph-Macon and I, you know, I was furious at the time, but he did probably what he should have done. He told me, you don't belong here. Mm. You're here, but you don't belong here. And, you know, they're like two people sitting next to you. I don't think you're going to make it. I don't think you're going to be one of the, one of the, th- you know, three that will make it. And, um, was he trying to inspire you or is he just, I, I think, I think so. Yeah. But you know, in whatever, and, but, but I owe him a great debt of debt, uh, gratitude. Um, so sort of what happened after that incident at, um, at Patrick Henry kind of went forth at Macon and dad was, dad finished, um, second in his class at Randolph Macon, uh, by this much, um, five, eight, a cap. Um, so, um, 
I feel like I was very proud that um, I turned it around. I finished seventh in my class, five, wow. beta, five beta Kappa. And, that, that, and I, I know that made Dad really happy. So I just feel, you know, I feel like that sort of turnaround is sort of what I feel like. Best I, phone call of your life, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, that's what kind of turned it around. So it's kind of an odd, it, it was, but that kind no, of. No, that's a great answer. Kind of defining yeah. moment, yeah. No, that's awesome. All right, so Randolph-Macon, uh, I, I was going to ask you because I grew up in Ashland as well, and my, my mom uh, was a professor at Randolph-Macon. Right. She's like, why don't you come to Randolph-Macon? Uh, <laughs> it won't cost anything because I work here. And I'm like, yeah. I, I know I, I don't want you guys to pay for college, but it's I we live a mile and a half from campus. Yeah. Like I'm going to see you way too much. I, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, and I, I didn't want to be the kid that did laundry at home and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I really had no other option. No, it's, it, it, it sounds like yeah, and no. it was my it was it was on you know it was my fault. Um, but it was sort of funny as I you know I got in there and I was starting to do pretty well at making um, I was because. Religion was a required, may still be, mm. but it was a required course at Randolph-Macon. But um, when I was there, it was paired up, I think, with philosophy and something else. So you could take something else and cover that requirement. But I, I, I messed with Dad and said, you know, guess who your new student's going to be? I said, no, I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Randolph-Macon has a proud Methodist heritage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, it used to be sort of promoted as being like the first... Um, Methodist-related mm. small college or something, but it, it certainly has a great heritage with the with the Methodist Church. That sounds right. All right, so uh, how, how do you remember your time at Randolph-Macon? Uh, Bes- besides academics, because being seventh in your class is pretty darn Yeah, impressive. I mean, I pretty much um, focused uh, because of what had happened before. I lived at home. Um, I was sort of like you. It just didn't make any sense. Um, you know, I was, I was fortunate to get the free ride. Um, in in re- retrospect, it probably would have been better um, had I lived on campus, because I think I missed out on some things. Um, but there's, was, there's a social aspect, yeah, to which I didn't really, which I didn't really um, get into a lot at Randolph because I knew most of the most of the professors and the workers, and you know, I just didn't know a lot of the students. Right. <laughs> um, so I mean, I was I was pretty much a bookworm. Um, I did have some health issues um, that I think may tie in a little bit to what we're going to talk about later. Right. But I, I was out for two years with a case of mononucleosis, a virus that, um, attacked me worse than like the doctor that I, that I went to said he'd never seen anything like it. So I was late graduating. I didn't graduate for still, I was a sixth year graduate. Holy cow. So a lot of it was laced with having to cut semester short, um, just not being myself health wise. Um, sounds but, brutal. Yeah, it was, it was tough. I went through at least two semesters that I got almost to exams and I just couldn't, it just, you know, threw me for a loop and I just couldn't finish. Mm. And I had to go back. I did, they just started summer school at Macon when I was um, in the position where that would help me get some credits. And I remember doing summer school, which was a brand new deal back in the early 80s. But yeah, that was, so it was, it was sort of a rocky deal from that standpoint. Um, the one, the one good thing, a really cool thing that came out of me being at Macon is that it took me six years to finish. So I got like to my last semester and I had really, I had to do one course. And that was about the time that they, uh, the college was really focusing on doing internships, expanding that program. You'd go out and do stuff outside of the walls of the school. And um, the um, political science, I, I did a lot of political science work. 
um, in college, and um, they had an internship to work at the Virginia General Assembly. Hmm. And um, I said, well, that's, I don't have any other classes I need to take. Maybe that might be worth doing. So um, Howard Davis, who was a um, local Ashland great guy, um, he actually placed me with a delegate um, at, the, at the Virginia General Assembly, which was uh, Frank Hargrove. Um, who was Hanover's delegate? May, maybe the most fa- famous person from Hanover County. Hey, uh, Frank is Frank was wonderful. I had the most wonderful experience. So I did the internship with Frank. Knew Frank. Frank was at Dad's church at Kenwood, so we knew the Hargroves, uh, and that made it better too. But I, I didn't. I hadn't seen Frank in a work capacity. He was an insurance man. had a had a big office right near, um, pr- pretty close to where Virginia Center Commons is now on the Hanover side. Um, so yeah, I did the internship. It, I just loved it. And uh, Frank kept me around throughout the eighties and I was his legislative aide. Mm. So I got to actually sort of work for Hanover, work for Ashland, um, of course, work for Frank. Um, but just a wonderful experience that, uh, I would never have gotten, um, but for Randolph Macon doing the, um, really pushing the internship programs. And at the time, um, in the early eighties, about, 80% of the Virginia legislature were attorneys. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I had to hang out with like attorneys all the time. And I really got fascinated with what they do, the, the committee work. And that's what led me to, to be, to pursue being a lawyer. How much so, time passed between graduating making and, and going to law school? I took one year off and work with work with Frank okay. for the whole year. And gotcha. then after that, during law school, I would work every time I didn't have, um, you know, when law school didn't interfere. And then, uh, one year after I finished um, uh, law school, I came back and worked for Frank too. So, I tried to milk it for as much as I could. It was well, a, well he had, he was a magnetic guy. Oh, Frank was. A, I just uh, I can't tell you what a wonderful experience that was. And Frank, you know, did so much for the county. Um, you know, just true Hanoverian. Yep. Um, um, just um, it, it was, you know, just dealing with sort of the the people that were really making concrete changes to people's lives. Um, I never, I was never really, I, you know, I enjoyed the classwork of political science, but getting in and doing it with somebody who, um, you know, was as good at what he did as Frank was. Um, I, I just, um, um, that's, you know, that's something that, um, one of the best times of my life. I mean, it really, um, it was a whirlwind. You had a session that was either, um, 45 days or 60 days. Uh, it went by in a flash. You never stopped. Mm. It was nonstop, you know, morning, all night. It functions. Um, and then after it was over, you know, with the House of Delegates, you know, you're running for election pretty much year round. So you had to, whatever you did, and I think we did a lot of good stuff. We had to get the word out. This is what we did. And we would like your support as we want to do more. That's politics, and, uh, right? Right. Yeah. And so I was from Hanover, but, you know, some of the places, um, uh, we had all of Hanover plus a little bit of Caroline County, um, the Reedy Church part of Hanover, uh, Caroline County. But you know, there are parts of Hanover that I wasn't all that familiar with, mm. uh, even living. In, so it was good to get out to other parts, you know, to go out and, um, you know, see people. I, I mean, I wasn't an introvert, but I was not an extrovert either. So it was good, good for me. And of course, not not being in college in the college setting. It finally got me out, and I was seeing a lot of people, and that was good too. No, oh, it's great. But yeah, yeah. So that that you know that I think built me into a much better person, better rounded person. And Frank was a big part of that. He, 
you know, I think I, I got comfortable there. I think I did well. I think he thought, I think he thought, you know, I could do more and he kind of gently pushed me on because I would have been happy to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you go to law school? I, well, that's a, that's an interesting story. It's, it's connected to Frank too. Um, I'd done so, you know, I'd done very well at Randolph Megan. So luckily, I had sort of my pick of the litter, so to speak. And uh, I um, I had taken all of my applications in. I was just tell, telling them at the um, in Hargrove Agency, this is where I'm looking at going to law school. And I just I wanted to get away. I had not I had not um, it, you know Randolph Megan. I had not uh, I'd lived at home. I just wanted to go somewhere you know, get that experience even a little later in life. So I took all my stuff in and Frank's um, uh, wife, Oriana, came in and she was always interested in everything. And uh, so she came into the room and I had all my stuff and apparently this st- stood out to her and it, it said Arkansas. Hmm. I said, why do you have Arkansas out here? And I said, well, yeah, they, they, um, they're not a real well-known school, but they're ranked very highly and... Um, the, just the, you know, they were very congenial to me when we talked. And she said, well, you know, David, I have, uh, I have family in Arkansas. Long story short, you know, after all of that, it just seemed like that's like halfway across the country and it's not, you know, a lot of people don't know about it, but I took the plunge and uh, went halfway across uh, the country to become a Razorback and I absolutely loved it. And you're, you sound like a proud Razorback. I am. I'm, I'm a, I could call the hogs. <laughs> Luckily, they can't see yeah, that. Yeah, there's no video for that. But, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was, I was very close to staying out there. It was so, uh, I had such a good time. But, um, and just enjoyed the people. It's a diff- different culture, different, uh, kind of a Midwest, Southwest combination. Mm. But salt of the earth people. And most of the people that went to law school were Arkansans or Texans. And uh, exposed me to a whole different kind of culture. Oh, the culture is very different. Uh, yeah, I'll, uh, this this is kind of bad, but it, it, I, I fell in love with the place. But our, you know, Arkansas will be Arkansas. So they we're doing the tour for new students. This would have been in um, August of '84, and um, so they're tour- they're taking us through the library, and these these students are um, at their carols studying or whatever. But I noticed in each carol. There was like a circular, um, um, I don't know, it's not a, not a cup per se, but something like it was built into the carol. But each of them had, you know, and so I, I'm like with all these Arkansans, you know, we're going through there. And of course, they knew what it was, but I didn't. And um, I actually, the, the leader or whatever, I said, can you can you tell me what that, and they, they looked at me. You know that's a spit cup, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, the, 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 it was a great law school. I'm, I'm, I, I keep up with a number of professors. The, the, unfortunately, a number of past, but uh, professors and my, my students, my, my fellow students, and you know made lifelong friends there. And um, you know I follow the sports religiously. They're they're very good in in um, in Division One. Across the board, they, so, they had a nice run in basketball this year. They did. They yeah. they made the elite eight the last two years, and um, but baseball. I mean, football. That just in a lot of people don't know it. They they won like more track championships than any. I would I would not associate Arkansas with track and field, but they've won an inordinate number of track and field national championships. So it's it's a lot of it's a it's a prideful thing to them because um, much like I think we may talk about. Our area where we don't have professional sports, but Arkansas doesn't either. So right. they, 
when football season hits in the, 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 the main universities in Fayetteville, which is in the northwest tip of the state, everybody will get their Winnebago's and Fayetteville becomes the biggest populated it's it's bigger than little rock oh, football oh yeah. yeah and and it's people that that's their that's the professional sports and that was that was an eye-opener too when i went to my first football game so yeah you're not we, you're not nationaling anymore and we play yeah. texas and it's like you know that that one is if is ever a light life and death thing um i, I it became pretty clear that was the, the next month or so is going to be dependent on one's mood as to how that game went. It's a, it's crazy, right? It is. It is. Yeah, if people from Virginia don't have a deep appreciation for uh, it's just football in other parts. Very of the different. It's just the nature of the the beast out there is that it's the only game in town. Yeah, and uh, but it makes it great. I mean, it's oh my god, it's it was. It was amazing. It's fun. It's it's cool to rally around the team. Oh, it is. Way. It yeah. is, and they, they really it, it becomes a very large extended Razorback family, and it, they have a chip on their shoulder. I mean, and, and they and they will tell you that. I mean, they're they're next to Texas. Um, normally, um, they feel like um, you know Dallas and Texas gets better players. They're just you know uppity, and so it's like you know we're the we're the you know we're the little guy, and they they make the most of it. I mean, really, I don't. It think works it, for them. There's a kernel of truth in it, probably, but they, boy, they milk that, and, and 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 they do really well with it. Well, Texarkana starts with Tex. <laughs> hey, it's not Arkansas Tech or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so you almost stayed out there. Yeah, pretty like. close. Pretty close. Well, I was 87. I I had to um, I had to finish in summer school. And um, I was, I had that summer, it's kind of like my Randolph Macon. I had to, my mom uh, had a um, bad car accident and I had to take a semester, come back to Virginia. Mm. So I was a little late finishing, but I had that, that last um, um, late semester kind of, I was, I was teetering back and forth though, but too much here. I mean, just too many connections ultimately brought me back. But uh, yeah, what a great place out there. Uh, Did you take the Arkansas bar? No, I came back and took Virginia. Yeah. And Virginia bars, that's pretty tough, right? Tough, yeah. It was, it was tough. That, uh, particularly when, even though I'd worked in the legislature and, you know, familiar with Virginia, I'd never, you know, I, I didn't go to law school that featured Virginia law. And part of the component of that is, um, you know, a Virginia section of the, uh, and it helps if you went to law school right. in Virginia. Not necessarily, you know, um, cast your die one way or the other makes it, you're in better shape. So I had to take a review course and really, I mean, that was sort of my, my three years of not having Virginia law education crammed into three months. And yeah, I mean, we are a commonwealth, and the, yeah. that introduces some uniqueness that Arkansas Law School probably didn't care much yeah, about. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, All right, but your connections brought you back. Yep. Um, and when you came back, it was Dad still a professor? Or he retired by that he was, he was He was winding it up, but he was still uh, – he, he stayed on until 92, and I finished in 87. Okay. So he was he was winding it up. And when you were growing up, did you know your dad was a World War II vet? Uh, I did. Um, probably the probably the first thing I remember um, was I was very young. I guess dad got out of the shower or whatever, and I just noticed he had like a a big gash in his back mm. in his shoulder, and um, you know it wasn't an open wound or anything, but it was, you couldn't you couldn't miss it. And I asked him, I said, what happened, you know? And he, he just mentioned, he, you know, I can't remember if it's many years ago, but just said, basically, I got shot in the war. And um, that's about all, you know, that, that was my first, you know, exposure to it. And then as I went through school, probably history and government and that kind of thing, uh, we would hit World War II, 
and um, that because I knew Dad was in World War II, um, you know that would lead to some questions of him, mainly I think for school purposes, you know, and uh, didn't get a lot of um, feedback. I mean, he he never put me off, but it, he tried to change the subject, and um, later, you know, is is. I got older and understood a little more about it. I, I kind of had an idea why that may have been the case. Yeah. yeah. But in, in later in life for him, when he was in his, what, early 90s, he ended up moving in with yes. you. Yes. Uh, and somebody who had been, you and I had talked about this uh, in our phone conversation, somebody who had been quite quiet about the topic uh, ended up talking a lot about it. Oh, uh, that, that was probably um, the, the one thing that I, you know, I didn't really expect um, because he had been so quiet about his service, but uh, whatever um, you know led him advancing years, uh, what had changed his his um, you know his persona as far as talking about it was a complete 180. Um, in fact, I didn't have to ask anything. I would say every day he had something about Germany, um, and I think you know part of it is I is I heard more from him about it. I think it was it was so bad so brutal that he he repressed it yeah. for many years there's no other way around it. that's how his mind dealt with it yeah and then it, it's at some point the floodgates opened and it all came out so it was um you know it was sad in some respects um he was like a walking encyclopedia though on on the war and and um he'd experienced a he lot was there he was there um and um but in in a way i think it was you know i feel it was good too because I believe he really needed to get it out, and he felt comfortable at that juncture in his life with us getting it out. So we we got a lot, and you know some of it was, you know, just gave me a, a new appreciation for you know anybody that serves in the military, uh, certainly in combat. Um, you, you just you know unless you've done it, there's no way to even comprehend it. But it, it just I just sat there and wide eyed, and you know I just shook my head. And um, it just made such a profound impact on him that, you know, he did so much good. I mean, he, you know, he was, um, he got advanced degrees. Um, he won uh, awards for teaching at Randolph-Macon. He did a, he did a course on the Holocaust when they started doing the January terms or the one month. Yeah. He made, I mean, they would, that, that was like, uh, it's like tickets going fast to a Springsteen concert. I mean, that, they gobbled that, people gobbled up that class. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, and um you know, that was probably again one of his ways of getting stuff out, is it is it began to come out, um, but just just knowing that um, how he carried that with him and still managed to have a really productive life, but there's no question it was a tremendous weight on him. Yeah, in one respect, the rest of his life had to seem simple compared to what he went through mm-hmm. in World War Two, but because of that weight, yeah. uh, the rest of his life was probably harder than you probably ever realized. It, uh, no doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt about it. Do you know what his, was, so my grandfather was in the war, and he was at one point an infantryman, another point he was a truck driver, and then he was sure. a cook at one point. What was your dad? Dad uh, was, um, in, in, I, want, I want to get this out because your, your father is the one that, uh, it, this came back to me when um, he was, I talked to your dad at uh, dad's funeral, my dad's funeral, and I brought up the, um, uh, the war, some of that as part of one, my remarks, and then your, your, and I had completely forgotten it, but your dad came up to me and said, you know, the thing I'll always remember about Willie when he talked about the war was that he said he wasn't um, a hero, but he wasn't a zero. 
<laughs> he did say that at the house, but I completely, but your dad reminded me of that. Yeah. Um, so, um, but his, um, um, you know, the, he, he told me his, his things came out. I believe he did have um, some uh, role, I would say all roles are important, but you know, like in the kitchen for a while, he, he was like the, the early, um, you know, when they first come out, some of the earlier uh, jobs that they would, I guess everybody may have had to do. I, yeah. mean, I would not say menial in a bad way, but uh, you get my point. Sure. Yeah. Things have to get done. But um, his, his biggest role and what he talked about the most was he was in the first infantry. Um, and um, where he got wounded um, was the um, Battle of the Bulge, which mm. was basically the the um, uh, the Ardennes Forest, uh, and he would talk about that a lot. Um, that's where the war basically it may have turned before then, but that's when Germany essentially uh, withered away. And within that was the turn by most yeah within folks yeah six months they you know they surrounded Hitler in, in uh, Berlin. Um, but he would he would go on, um, and it was it was like it was like a history lesson, Paul. I mean, he would he would talk about um, the one thing was just the weather, the horrific w- winter conditions, which actually played into the Germans. Um, and he would get into that part of it too about how you know these things were timed because of the weather. But you know how many of his um, um, cohorts, you know, froze to death. Um, he, you know, he would see them in the foxhole frozen to death. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, who can, I mean, who today in the lives we were lucky enough to live can have that stowed away somewhere? I mean, I can't even fathom it, but you, you, you people that you've been alongside are, are laying there dead, frozen to death. And if they weren't dead, they were losing limbs and extremities because of, of frostbite. Um, and he would talk about that. He would talk about, you know, his, his people next to him, um, not only being, you know, just killed, through German um, weaponry, but the weaponry of the of the climate there, um, he would tell me that because of the forest, um, a lot of you know they would actually be shot at through trees, you know, up in trees. In fact, he believes that's how he got shot. Um, it was you know it came from a tree, mm. came and got him in the in the shoulder, and it could have it could have been scrapnel from. Who knows where it bounded around, but that's what ultimately got him. Um, but he, you know, he talked about the terrain, um, the um, you know, the, the tanks that that really were inoperable a lot of a lot of that time. Um, yeah, it was um, you know, it was harrowing to um, to hear. The other thing that's interesting um, is that the Germans. Uh, this was it for them. I mean, this was everything was. Um, yeah. But they actually did a wonderful job of using prisoners of war and dad talked about the prisoners they captured and talking to those prisoners and getting insight from what the germans were thinking um but they had disguised um they, they'd gotten with american prisoners and basically were able they took their uniforms they tried to work on accents and they basically um were imp- impersonated um, I mean, the Germans, ba- you know, basically uh, impersonated Americans mm-hmm. and, and massacred. And you didn't know you didn't know who friend or foe was. In fact, they had like a, a litany of um, he told me about a litany of uh, or litmus test to ask people to make sure that they were legitimately Americans. Wow. And he, he gave me some of the questions. One of them was like Betty Grable, something about Betty Grable. <laughs> but 
Yeah, I mean, so I mean, what a what a um, you know, he painted a picture that was really something I could I could not even fathom, and that's when it hit me that well, no wonder he didn't want to talk about it back in the seventies. Yeah, I mean, and you who would? And these guys, I don't. When, when did your dad go overseas for World War Two? Uh, he was he was in the army from forty three to forty six. Yeah, so he and, was in a combat zone yeah. for. A, Sounds like more than two years. Yeah, well, he, he he was, you know, he did, his his bigger role was the one that I've described as far as combat goes. But, I mean, he was, you know, he was in the, the mix for, uh, you know, before and after. Um, the, the You know, not before the war started, but a good bit of, a chunk of the middle of the war till actually the, the um, whatever the after effect, the cleanup operations were. And he's watching, uh, ostensibly, his friends. Die. Oh right, right. And um, you're doing hard things for a long period of time with the same people, and and then you watch what he saw. Oh, yeah. and and Dad was um, what he talked a lot about was as soon as soon as he turned 18 and he went to a little high school in Jarrett in Sussex County, uh, Greenville County is right on the line. But um, pretty much when he had 18, you know, the draft board, he was he was gone. I mean, gone as far as that was his plight. You right know, from there and that i think that you think about you know young people today uh myself included um when i was younger i mean i didn't have that when i turned 18 um you know i was still trying to do some homework that i should have been doing for <laughs> but I, I mean i think it struck him that he that was his life that he did not have any reason to want to do and yet he answered the call as yeah. so many did you know oh yeah yeah well i mean tom brokaw wrote the book the greatest generation that's if i didn't know it before i knew it when dad moved in <laughs> yeah yeah uh and I, I i think you're probably better off of his son hearing all of that yeah. about your dad yeah and i think it i think it was good for him to um to be able to talk about it you know and yeah, and I wish he had done it when he was in his thirties or forties. Yeah, but yeah, but I, I completely understand the reason why. Yeah, and he. But what was amazing is that he, um, uh, through the GI Bill, he went um, uh, in forty six. He went to, later in forty six. He went to Randolph Macon, and um, as again, he he went the four years and, and was this far from being the top of his class, mm. even carrying. The recent scars of that. I mean, to me, that I mean, that's a hero. Oh my gosh! I mean, I mean, your dad was being humble when he said he wasn't a hero. He, he was not a zero. I think he's. I think he was a hero. He certainly wasn't a zero. Well, he's uh, he's a hero in my <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah, no doubt. This episode is brought to you by Homemades by Suzanne. Homemades by Suzanne is a popular lunch destination. They also offer full service catering for corporate and special events, easy carryout meals, box lunches, deli buffet trays, gift baskets homemade breads, and bakery items. Find more info at ashlandvirginia.com. Uh, I don't know how to transition to this, but you had mentioned that you, uh, when, when COVID started, uh, the world was freaking out. And, uh, but pretty quickly, you realized that if, unless you were susceptible because you had other conditions that made you susceptible uh, or you were of a certain age, you were going to, suffer the sickness at least the thinking back then was and you you'd be fine and you'd move on and you'd you wouldn't get it again was the thinking i i don't know anybody that has what you were describing to me the other day but you have long-term covid i I guess the first place to start is what is long-term covid yeah paul i appreciate you you're bringing it up because it is um it's a um a uh a type of 
COVID um, that is not very well known, not understood, um, not that we're all going through or have gone through the issue of COVID in general um, as a very newfangled thing, uh, doctors and, and, and patients and everything else. Um, but, uh, and I certainly didn't know about it. I guess I'd gone about a year is everybody was getting it and having issues. You had people on ventilators and unfortunately people passing, particularly elderly. Um, and I dodged it for, um, a good year. Um, but I had a positive test. Um, actually it was like a week after I got vaccinated the first time mm. and, um, that had nothing to do with it, but it's just the interesting, the, the connection right. be January of last year. So it's been 16 months ago. Um, I didn't have a version where, um, I had to go to the hospital. Um, I just had the typical flu like symptoms like everybody else did. I lost my sense of taste and uh, smell, um, for a long time, but pretty much what everybody else had, um, you know, waited out 10 days and, and, or thereabouts and you should be good to go. And that part of it was true as far as the, um, the flu-like part of it, um, that did go away according to plan. The fever went away for the most part. The, uh, the body aches, that stuff went away. The, the difference is there is a small percentage of people um, that um, continue to have symptoms and they don't go away. Uh, and the reason why, nobody knows. Um, and when you say don't go away, do you mean not for a year or two or do you mean permanent? Well, it, that's sort of to be determined. Yeah, I guess it's we don't know. Still, still not enough yeah. data to know that. Um, like the rest of COVID, it's um, um, there's so much unknown about it. In other words, some people's symptoms go away completely, which is great. And that's what you want. Um, bad as you feel at the time, it's you know it's over with, and if you you know survive it, you're good to go. Right. Um, the long COVID can take all kinds of different directions. You know, some symptoms are different amongst different people that continue to have the symptoms. Um, as we go longer, and of course, I've had to sort of become an expert on it, like in any kind of medical condition when you have it. Um, but it, it it appears that the ones that don't that 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 linger the most are what you hear generically as brain fog, mm. which is a cognitive deficiency that uh, either COVID has caused or continues to cause at some level, um, and, and fatigue, the really advanced fatigue, not the fatigue like I just got to stretch to get up. It's like you can't get out of bed. Mm. Uh, kind of like mononucleosis, which I'd mentioned in Macon when I had that. Yeah. I, I, to, I believe there's some connection, but they, we don't know enough to, to say that. <laughs> I keep trying to push the doctors, but they won't, they won't take the jump. But I think it, ultimately that'll probably, in my view, may well be a, a nexus. But my particular case, um, I'm going on 16 months now. Um, I just, you know, for 14 of those months, um, I couldn't, to get out of bed was an effort every day. And you're, um, you're a prosecutor and in I'm Brunswick a prosecutor County. And I've got to drive a hundred miles to work one yeah. way. Um, I, you know, I use my leave up. Um, and then I had to make a decision. Um, am I going to try to keep, nobody really knows how to help me. I've had all the tests. I've had brain scans. I've had blood work, every conceivable test, everything comes back normal. Mm. But the, the undeniable thing is I'm not, you know, I, I can't, you know, I don't have energy to do anything. I don't have the mental f faculties to do, particularly the job that I do, where we, we have to sort of put thoughts together and 
Um, You're thinking all the time. That's 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 sort of what we hang our hat on. And um, my my problem, Paul, is bad. You know, I went back to work, and you know, luckily I've I've been doing it so long. A lot of stuff. I, you know, I, I kind of know now my limitations. I know what I can do, things I shouldn't do because people's lives hang in the balance with what I do. Um, but stubbornness is a big part of it too. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to give in. Um, but you know, I kept hearing just, just stay the course. Don't push it. Um, you know, it looks like people have their own timelines, but it, you know, you had a really bad case of mono. It took you two years back when you were 20, you're 60 now. We don't know, but you know, just keep giving it time. And so, you know, basically that's what I did for about a year continue to just try to slog through it, you know, not, not, um, um, thinking normally judgment, not right. Um, you know, can't put sentences together like I used to. Um, well, you're you're doing really well today. Yeah. Well, I'm having a good day, (laughs) (laughs) but what got me, Paul was about this time, uh, this early this year, which would have been about the year anniversary of me getting it. I thought I was getting worse. In other words, I was, I felt worse, you know, my, you know, my head was just, you know, the fog was getting denser. I was feeling worse. Um, you know, I thought my cognitive abilities were getting worse. Um, and, um, I just said, I, I've got to do something, you know, I can't, you know, if this is the, if this is the die that's cast, so be it, but I've got to do everything I can do to see if there's a way out of this, or if not, I'll just have to adjust to a very different life. Um, so, you know, had more, uh, got more specialists involved. And finally, um, about two months ago, um, I got uh, admitted to a long COVID uh, rehab program in, um, in the Richmond area, Sheltering Arms. Um, I'm not a spokesman for them, but I, I will sing their praises because they've been the one, uh, they've been my life raft. Um, they put me through a regimen of, of, of physical therapy and cognitive therapy. Um, which I'm still doing the cognitive part now, and I'm basically, you know, relearning to do certain things. I'm relearning um, um, how to tackle something beyond a one issue thing where I can focus, um, and it's it's been a remarkable turnaround. Um, I'm still ongoing with that, but you know, the moment that you think you may have got it whipped, and I had a, a reality check about a week ago. Um, I got hit with another wave that I hadn't had for about six weeks. And it was tough because mm. I thought I might have had it whipped. Um, so this past week, uh, it's it was the same deal. And, and the, the thing I would just, if anybody has this issue, because a lot of people have it and they don't say anything about it. I mean, Paul, there have been a tremendous number of suicides, mm. people that have this. Because you don't, you know, I can understand because people don't, they feel so bad, but they're not, they're not confined to bed. So people look at them and think they're okay. Um, but they're not. And that weighs on you. Um, you know, I'm not saying nobody believed me cause I have some really good healthcare providers, but a lot of people, there's nothing wrong with you. Your test came back fine. Right. That, that weighs on you. You're talking about too. medical people. Well, the medical people have been, you know, great, for, you know, but, but other people I, I suspect don't have the same people that I have around me and may Mm. just, you know, it doesn't take much when you're at that and you can't function. Nobody knows what to do. Um, you know, it's, it's bad. It's bad. And I mean, you're not bedridden or anything. So, um, and I don't think a lot of people talk about it because it's something that you can't quantify it to somebody that, you know, I've got a a high temperature. I've got, 
it's it's like your brain doesn't work and there's no good reason for it and you don't have any oomph at all and i say that i mean nothing it's not like a little tired it's like nothing mm. but yet most of us aren't in the, in the position where we can just lay around for the rest of our lives you know which is not good so um but what i found is um the folks at sheltering arms um they're learning as we are but um the main thing i've uh, gotten from it is um people that have this um push because for so long with me don't push it you're feeling terrible you're not it's not getting any better don't just stand pat that did not work for me and what the main thing they did is they pushed me physically uh, dropped 30 pounds um, in about 10 weeks they pushed me mentally that's a lot of that's weight. a lot of weight but the right way too but you lay around and don't do anything and you it doesn't take your appetite unfortunately but um, you know it's like any bully, Paul, that I've ever dealt with. If you stand up to it, mm. they tend to back down. And for instance, this week, that's what I did um, and didn't feel very good. And, you know, knowing this thing is still with me kind of mentally gets you a little bit. But the same thing happened. I, you know, once I, you know, continued to press on, it, it, it sort of faded back a little bit. So, um, you know, how long that's going to take, uh, where that's going to lead, I don't think anybody knows. But I know that there are a lot of people that are probably the silent uh, minority of COVID people that are still dealing with these issues. And I, I've already turned uh, turned a couple of folks that I've just come up and, and turned them on to what's going on at Sheltering Arms with the long COVID program. And um, that it, it's a, been a huge benefit. So anybody that doesn't think there's a way out of it or doesn't think they, they can ever get any better, nobody knows anything, we do have something locally that, that can help and has helped. I'm glad we're talking about this because I yeah. imagine 98% of uh, America doesn't know. Well, I called I called one doctor's office, and um, I'm not going. You know, it, 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 I'm not dis- disparaging that individual, um, but it just kind of goes to show what people that have it have to deal with. And, you know, I mentioned it's part of something I needed. You know, I have long COVID, and then I got a response. What's long COVID? This is from a medical right. office. And again, I'm not, but that's sort of the, that's therein lies the problem that so many people don't know um, that there is such a thing and how debilitating it is. And the bad thing is we really don't 100% know what to do about it, but we're getting there. And like I said, the things that, that, that have been done um, through a neurologist that I saw that, that she referred me to sheltering arms made a tremendous difference. So I feel like you know, I've got an enemy that now I, I've got, I've got some ammunition, mm. you know, and, um, and that, and that, and that, that's in itself a big deal. You, there's something you can do versus just kind of being a re- receiver. Yeah, just take this it. thing whips you, these yeah. waves hit you and you just kind of, you know, you really are just kind of like the, the old cartoons where the, you know, the, the, the uh, Bugs Bunny or whatever gets hit in the head and you see the stars. Well, that's kind of like the first 14 months were for me, you, wow. but you don't know what to do. So, um, but recently, more good days than bad. Hundred percent, hundred percent, yeah. Um, well, I'm gl- I'm glad you and Sheltering Arms got together. Exactly, um, and and they're trying to get the word out. It's just um, so uh, I told him I said I, I'll be your biggest cheerleader because through nobody's fault, it's because nobody knows what to do. But these things have started to, to pop up, and um, I've been very fortunate, and um, you know I make I've made a ton of progress. So that's uh, great. Yeah, and. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult when, um, you know, just the, the very uh, mundane things that you take for granted with your, with your 
brain are no longer available to you. Mm. Scary. It's it's terribly scary. Scary is probably a good word to use because um, some of the things that that happened to me, um, particularly a year into it, um, and I'll just, just, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say it. Uh, One of the things that um, um, made me know that I had to do something, I couldn't keep it uh, where I was, this was a year into this, um, Paul. I actually got scammed by con men claiming to be federal authorities. Mm. They, they caught me on a particular bad day, and I gave them a bunch of money. Wow. And David, who's been doing law enforcement for 30 years, that was sort of a defining moment as much as the one we talked about before. I'm, you know, I said, at this point, I'm not going to... You know, I'm not going to go down quietly. I'm not going to, if this is my lot, um, so be it. But to me, that was the lowest of the low. And that's when things have gone up since then. So, you know, if you get a um, uh, 30-year, pretty savvy, I would say, prosecutor, because you do it that long, you pick up a lot to get scammed by people. Yeah. That's not the brain that I have. Right. And so I knew at that point. So it, it's been like a 180 in a lot of ways since that. So, um, you know, um, but that, that was tough. That that's was a, tough. That was that, tough that's to a, stomach. That's a very low point for somebody yeah. who's done what you've done. Exactly. For adult exactly. At that point, you can't say that staying back, you know, staying pat, um, let it, let it continue to, you know, I just felt at that point that. You know, it couldn't get brain-wise. It couldn't get much worse. Judgment-wise, it couldn't get much worse than that. Right. It, it's 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 very nefarious foe. It really, um, this thing will you know will get you. It'll beat you down, and it'll it'll just uh, you know it's it's uh, it's it's hard to explain, but it's it's debilitating. But you're doing better. It, I am, and it's it's uh, it's great to finally feel better because it's for so long you don't even you know you don't even have a. Um, uh, a real feel for what it is to feel good again. Mm. You're, you're just in that fog. You're just kind of going through the motions. You're trying to get through the day. And, you know, nobody should live like that if, if there's anything they can do about it, you know. Right. So, yeah. And they can do something about it. It is. They it just is. have to we're, have we're the knowledge. And I think longer, hopefully COVID's run, you know, for the most part, we're not seeing a lot of what we did and and we won't be having new cases that could develop into long COVID cases, but there are a lot of, there are a good number of people out there that uh, I know are suffering probably in silence, which mm. I did for quite a while. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just hope that they'll, they'll keep, you know, keep the faith and, and there, there's stuff out there that can help them. Well, this podcast maybe helps a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And, very cool. Uh, very cool that you, we talked about that. Not very yeah, cool that you went no, through that. I appreciate that. you bringing um, it up too. Uh, yeah. It's uh yeah, I can't. Makes me feel good that I have never, never suffered anything like that. I can't imagine. It's it's um, you know I can't. The, the percentages are out there, Paul. But it you know it's it's a you know it's less than ten percent um, and of people that have COVID in, end up getting some form of long COVID. And again, you know what they've told me at Sheltering Arms is that um, of course I know that they're you know in fact my doctor had it for six months long COVID. So it was a godsend getting her mm. when I went in for neurology, you know, I went for my, my head because I said, you know, I can't people scamming me out of money. That doesn't happen. And, you know, something got to be wrong. Well, the MRI course was fine, but I get a doctor who's had long COVID and knows that that doesn't tell all, you know? Right. So, you know, that was, um, um, it, it was good to get somebody who's got some 
is, is a medical provider knowing what you're going through. But hers was six months. You know, John Smith is going to be eight months. Jill Smith is going to be two months. And what, they, what they've been telling me is um, there is that a lot of folks, you know, just aren't recovering. And, of course, we just don't know whether for them was two years going to be the cutoff or is there not going to be a cutoff. Yeah. You know, I thought I had my cutoff about, you know, a week ago. I'm not sure now I've reached quite reached that point. But, I, you know, generally they're saying that um, once somebody turns the corner, they usually don't go back very far. It's usually there's enough data to sort of support that. Well, that's but, why I asked the question, was it permanent or what, yeah. is there an end to it? Because COVID itself as a concept has been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I, I assume that there was a lot more data and a lot better understanding. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the data, Paul, actually is from not from the U.S. because um, they're drawing. We're getting more now, but of course, COVID hit uh, other countries before it hit us here in the U.S. So a lot of the data, at least earlier on, was from other countries, which doesn't necessarily mean it's not you know it doesn't apply to us too. But we're getting more data now from the U.S. And again. I think it's just going to take a little longer to see if these people that have the longer deals are going to are going to see some betterment. Yeah. But you know they're talking about doctors and you know people that have similar things or they have pretty sharp mental skills just cannot get it back to the point of doing what they're doing. And, and, and you know mine is you know sort of up in the air. I, I feel positive about it now. I just I haven't been doing a lot of um, trials where I can do something that could hurt either side. Mm-hmm. Just if I have a you know a bad day or a bad moment. Um, but I've had a couple that have gone really well, so I'm, I'm optimistic. But I've been that part of it. I have not. I've been very slow to want to. You know, I just too, too much hangs in the balance for me to have a have a dense fog hit me during the trial. But I, I think I'm going to get there. I mean, I'm I'm more confident now than I've been. And, well, based on what we're talking about now, it sounds like uh, you're going to get to a so. place where you're going to be, so. be okay. So I feel I feel fortunate. I mean, I really do. Uh, all right, once again, I can't transition very smoothly to the n- next question. Uh, you've been a prosecutor for most of your time as a lawyer. Why uh, prosecution versus defense? It's funny. The, um, when I um, you know, got out of law school, the one thing that I didn't want to do was criminal law. Um, I'm not sure why, but I didn't want to prosecute. I didn't want to defend. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, so I, when I took my first... Um, job uh, down in Emporia, Virginia, which is um, in Greensville County, near the North Carolina line. And I had family in that area that drew me to that area. Um, I actually worked for Legal Aid, which was is sort of a service-based thing. It's a civil, you help people with civil problems if they can't afford it. I mean, if they can't, uh, uh, if they're getting evicted from their house or their apartment, um, they get served with a civil suit. Um, Anything that's not criminal, <laughs> they do. <laughs> so I'm on the street. I remember this vividly. I'm, I'm on the street in 1989 down there, a new person as far as their legal community. And uh, I'm just walking down the street, and somebody passes me and had a coat and tie on, you know, and he said, uh, aren't you the new guy in town? And I said, yes, yes, sir. Well, and he said, well, I'm the Commonwealth's attorney here in Greensville. I didn't know him. And he said, you know, we've just got the new prison in Greensville that has death row. You may have heard about mm-hmm. that. And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you know, people, they don't always behave in prison. And so because of that situation, the, the um, comp board has given me a, a new position. Would you be interested in it? Hmm. And I said, I've never done, I've never done a criminal case before. He said, well, that doesn't matter. I said, well, he said, come on, let's talk about it. Long story short, 
I ended up becoming their assistant, assistant commonwealth attorney down there, which means I did criminal cases as a prosecutor. And I never would have thought I would have gone that direction. I wouldn't have, but for that chance meeting. But uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. I enjoy working with, um, you work closely with the uniform law enforcement. I have great respect for what they do. It's a very hard job. Um, it's a hard job. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on now where, um, you know, they're catching a lot of heat for certain things. It's, it's, it's a tremendously difficult job. I am, I am, when I look at them, now we have pretty much camera footage of every stop, every interaction, which is a good thing because I spend most of my day watching that, Paul, mm-hmm. in, in the, the hypersensitive, heated situations they get into and the level of, decorum and professionalism they use is amazing. I knew it all along, but seeing it on these on these uh, body cams is just hits at home hard. So I mean, I always enjoyed that. I mean, I always enjoyed um, um, you know trying to help victims um, and witnesses that are involved in a very traumatic experience. I enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, so I continued um, to do that um, when I first started, and I found like I really enjoyed it. Uh, defense. I've, I've done defense work too. Um, after after I um, did a couple of years as an assistant, I actually um, wanted to try my my uh, had it starting my own law practice. Mm. So I did that in a in a adjoining county, Sussex County. I hang out hung out the shingle, uh, which was difficult. I mean, it's you know I'm sure it's even more difficult today. But I I uh, was in private practice myself for about three years, and uh, I did defense work as part of that. And of course, having done the uh, the prosecuting part of it um, before it gave me a, a kind of a full specter of what goes into the dynamic of the criminal justice uh, system that I'm working. I'll give you I'll give you a funny story though. I didn't mention when I did the um, when I, my first job was as an assistant commonwealth attorney. At that time, they were part time, so we were able in that office not only to do that part of the job, but to to do a private practice on the side. Mm. It was it was allow- it was allowable. I don't think it's a very good idea. Now you can't do it. But as part of that, um, I did defense work in Sussex County that was next door. I got on their court appointed list. So, and this, this it led to some interesting dynamics. Um, I would be in Greensville County prosecuting somebody in the morning. And, you know, they would, um, you know, I'd find them guilty. Um, some of them, some of them I found guilty, some not guilty, but the ones that I found guilty, um, they would end up going to jail sometimes. And so when I went to the adjoining jurisdiction where I did the defense work, um, I would go into the jail to interview my clients for the defense work in that county. Well, I remember a couple times as I was going to meet with my client to defend him, I would the guy that I just convicted and the other would pass right by me. <laughs> Therein lies the problem why they don't allow that anymore. <laughs> it sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. So that was pretty uncomfortable. Um, but I did, I did the private practice and it was tough. It was tough. Um, and, um, cause you're running the business too. Right. It, it was not only, uh, it was a business more so then. And, um, at that juncture, you know, the, the Commonwealth attorney in that jurisdiction had been there a long time. He wasn't particularly well-liked, kind of abrasive. I liked him personally, um, but he'd been there 32 years. And I said, what, what do I have to lose? I'm just going, I'm going to run. And 
I beat him by whopping six votes, <laughs> which actually is one vote. I'm to my dying day. I think it's one vote because we had a recount and I lost five. I, I think five votes. I probably should have lost. I didn't technically lose, so it's one vote. But anyway, wow. Um, so that 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 sort of put me into being a Commonwealth attorney because that was the elected for that in that jurisdiction and for that for that one term. And although I had a short stint defending after that, I've pretty much been a prosecutor since then. Um, so uh, again, the same things. Uh, I have great respect for the defense bar. Um, my I would say my closest friends in the legal community are defense attorneys that I work with. Um, they they have a tremendously difficult job. We have to have them. Um, you know, to do their job well for the system to work. And, um, you know, they're having done it, I know how difficult it is. And, we, you know, we, if we do our respective jobs the right way, I think generally we'll get the right outcomes, whatever that may be. I think we're, we're looking, in my view, as a prosecutor, you, you just want to see that justice is done. If that means an innocent person walks, then that's the right thing. Yeah. Um, you don't want to, you know, obviously wrongfully convict anybody. Um, you want to be, you know, temperate in your um, sentencing. If you do convict somebody, try to look at the whole person. I do juvenile court because that's its own animal. A lot of, a lot of prosecutors don't want to do it. I think that's important because, um, you know, if we can save young people before they become career criminals, that's a victory. That's part yeah. of the gig, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the way I see it. And I'd like to think any good prosecutor thinks the same way. Um, but it, it's rewarding like any job. It has its day. I mean, it's, there's never a dull moment. Um, but, you know, in the long, in the long um, uh, run, you know, we have, a, we have a big role to play in the system. And if you don't have uh, a prosecutor who I think looks at it in the right way, you're going to have problems. And um, so I, you know, I, I try to, you know, look at, you know, I don't keep a count of wins and losses. I don't think that applies to a prosecutor. I think if you come out of it thinking you, you put your best case on, the court decides or a jury decides, um, that's justice and I, and that's what's appropriate. You've objectively done your best. Right. It's, and wins and losses should not be part no, of it. And the, I hate when people talk about winning cases and losing cases. That's, yeah. that's, I understand a lot of it. It's used generically, then, but present, to me, it presents the wrong, you know, the, the wrong, it projects the wrong thing. Um, and you know, young in like anything else in, in um, Paul's, we go through the ranks on anything, um, young prosecutors, I think like young law enforcement, young, whatever, there's a gung ho. You gotta, you know, what we do, you really do have to, um, uh, make sure that you keep the, um, the real, um, the real reason you're doing the job, uh, it's not to, to notch your belt. You got somebody, you know, that somebody else couldn't get, uh, maybe they didn't have the evidence. That's why they didn't get it, you know, but, um, it, it really, you know, er, every day it's, you just got to, what's the right thing to do. And that's, that's where like a college like Randolph Macon has helped. I mean, they instill things in you there, um, that don't necessarily go with a class, but integrity, honesty, um, you know, dad was in the, a lot of things he meant, this one about Germany, but he mentioned being on the honors council Mm. and how he took, you know, he reported people that, that, um, and he took a lot of flack for it. Um, and that's kind of the, what we do. I mean, we take, you know, we take a lot of flack if, um, you know, we maybe make a decision that, that people don't agree with. Well, that, that's, 
that's something that we've signed up for. I mean, we, we, we need to try to do the right thing. And that's, you know, every day that's what I try to do. I don't, I don't look at this case. Um, man, that's, you know, judge made a mistake or <laughs> the jury, why did they do that? I don't think you can function like that. So that's why, you know, it's, it's important to have a level, good functioning brain <laughs> to do what we do. Not so much you have to be smart. I think common sense plays a lot into it and hopefully good judgment and, but that's pretty much what, what I do. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's always a challenge because um, just to, to treat, you know, in my case now it's Brunswick County is my community, but as part of the community is the defendant. And you've got to weigh and balance what's best for everything to get a just outcome. And it's, you know, that, that will always be difficult, but it's also rewarding. All right. You and I were talking uh, a few days ago, as I mentioned, and we talked about at least a couple minutes, if not a little bit longer on every topic we've talked about thus far to include the, the next one I'm about to introduce. Oh, I think good uh, one's and, coming and, up. And by the way, I, I knew everything <laughs> other than long-term COVID. I, I had a high-level understanding of the topics uh, that I wanted to chat with you about, and, and I'm thankful we just talked about them. You shocked me with the next topic. Uh your love and dedication to professional wrestling, especially in this part of the country. That's, that's, um, probably the, um, um, the, the, you know, you mentioned hobbies and things like that. Right. Um, the, the, yeah, it, this has been a, it's been a wonderful, um, journey and a very unlikely, um, uh, venue, I suppose, using a legal term, <laughs> but it, um, but it, it goes back to really the time that I was, uh, kicking around Gandhi at Liberty or, uh, Liberty, Patrick Henry. Um, again, you know, a big sports fan, but, um, overall played sports and, and, uh, love to watch them. But, you know, central Virginia, we really don't have like the central Virginia, you know, gladiators or what I, I mean, it, it never, not, ha- never have, never have. And, you know, I'm not sure we will anytime soon, but the one, the one thing that was a constant for me on Saturday afternoons was, uh, a, an animal called mid Atlantic championship wrestling. Um, as a young kid, um, you know, it, it, it looked real. It was, it was, it was sort of a combat sport the way it was presented back in the seventies when I really got into it. Um, where you had um, larger than life individuals, physically uh, and physical, personality, and, and it's not like now where you have, or maybe more so like in the latter '80s where you had Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior that painted them steroid. You know, wasn't that, but you had legitimately really big men who could talk a blue streak. They were entertaining, <laughs> and they got it. You thought they were gonna. I mean, it looked like a contest to the death. Yeah, and I've always enjoyed. Um, I think. I don't know. I'm sure you have things in, in your office too. I have the man in the arena. Um, and there's always been a part of me that I like being in the arena. I like whether it be, um, the courtroom. Uh, I did a short gig for arena football when I kind of was their beat writer. I mean, I just love sort of that part of it. Um, and just sports in general, you have to have a winner and you have to have a loser. Um, and wrestling kind of fit that in that it's good against evil. It was it was sort of you know that added on top of it and I just it just mesmerized me. So um, I would um, you know guys that were back in this area back in the seventies um, you know that I watched on TV with eyes this big and I got a cassette recorder and I recorded all of the uh, their matches and the interviews I still have them to this day 
and just it, it's like these guys are you know, unbelievable. So I'd go Friday nights in Richmond and watch them live, and I would never get a ringside seat. Uh, my dad went with me some. He, he, he t- I don't think I told you this, Paul, but he would bring books with him to read. Or <laughs> let's suffice to say that didn't last but so long. It was pretty wild, and I think I enjoyed that too. It was exciting just being with all these. Had smoke-filled rooms. The smoke came by the end of the car. The smoke would be at the ring. Mm. Um, it, the, the people were just so into it. I just it was. I, I just got the got the disease, as we call it, mm. uh, in the in the wrestling business. But I would never um, get in. I, I, they were bigger than life, so I I could never meet them or anything. I don't even want to be. I just want to watch and take it in and watch the good and evil play itself out. You know, at, on the storylines. So, you know, I went through until I really went to law school and I went to Arkansas where we didn't have the local people anymore. And the business was changing then anyway. It was going more national. You didn't have like uh, Mid-Atlantic, which was the two Carolinas in Virginia that had the, the, the traveling troop right. through, the, through, through our states. It was changing anyway, but that sort of took me away from it. Um, but I still had the love. I'd listen to my tapes and everything. But then, then you know, real life came involved. I got... Uh, um, you know, went to law school, got, you know, got the job we've been talking about, got married. Um, and you, you still love it, but there was really no outlet. This wrestling still happens, but it's different. It's, it's just sort of a different dynamic. It's not really presented as being real. It's sort of, everybody kind of knows that it's a, it's an act. It's a, it's a, um, Shakespearean tragedy, um, choreographed and everybody now kind of knows it and of course back then it was slow to get to that point so it's different um so we get to about 1998 and something called the internet comes about and that ties everybody together that may have sort of been like me that loved it but we've never had a chance to get together they may have been like in greenville south carolina on the other end of the mid-atlantic circuit or or somewhere in the carolinas but we all came together and that led to a resurgence of, of, I guess, my love for wrestling, the old wrestling more so, although I, I still have great respect for the new guys who can do amazing athletic things. Um, but I met, I met a fellow on the internet um, who shared my passion for it, maybe you might say uh, a little to the nth degree passion for it. Um, and we got to talking um, through the internet and eventually in 2000, said let's try this there's these things called websites maybe we can put something out and, and see how many people would be interested in you know our thoughts and recollections of the old mid-atlantic days so uh long story short the mid-atlantic gateway website was formed and we're here in 2022 it's going stronger than ever and there's an unbelievable amount of information were you able to take a look oh at my it? gosh Good. <laughs> how many hours a week were you spending at the height putting that Gee, together? It, it, but it's a labor of love, Paul. So really, that doesn't even add into it, you know. No. Um, but so you know, we've met kindred spirits from all over the world. I mean, we we have um, you know we can keep track of our hits from other countries, and oh, it's just incredible. Um, meeting fellow fans is what we expected. The one thing we didn't expect was the wrestlers themselves, our heroes growing up. Um, you know that are very guarded particularly the ones back in that area about you know not exposing the business the, the inner workings of the business um because a lot of it was kept under wraps back then but generally just the mistrust of anybody that wasn't in their circle even to this day uh if you're not one of them they're not going to tell you a lot um and 
you know, we were lucky to get uh, the couple, the first people that reached out to us in wrestling wise, um, took us at our word that we were just fans. We, we thought they were great. We think people should know they're great and particularly young people that would have no other way of knowing what they did and how they entertained everybody. Um, we were lucky that they believed us and um, the old term put somebody over is a wrestling term for they're okay you can trust them and um, so it just kind of spread like wildfire so we not only got you know a great following worldwide with um, fans and announcers and and everybody that had something to do with this but the wrestlers themselves Mm. which was completely um, unexpected that's not that's not why you did in the first place no no and I think I think that came across I mean we were just not out to make a buck on them we don't we don't make any money off the site and um, I've made some of the most wonderful friends of, of people that I would have. It's kind of like, you know, don't ever talk to your heroes because they'll disappoint you. Don't ever meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you. Well, that's that was my philosophy for a long time. But um, when the website got going, we did it. And I can tell you, Paul, not one of them is disappointed or even come close to it. I probably have disappointed them. I doubt but, that. But, but they've become, you know, lifelong friends. And... I mean, close friends, and um, unfortunately, a number have passed away. But I feel very fortunate that the window that we had, we got to know a lot of them before they did pass. And there are a number that are st- with us t- still that are just great. But yeah, pretty much the you know people that that may be our age area. Um, you know, if you remember, of course, Ric Flair is still very much <laughs> an entity for the current set and, and that probably will never change till he everybody they, knows who rick flair is. rick but you know rick was um uh, rick is one um uh, paul jones blackjack mulligan um um Na- names from my childhood holy anderson um the anderson brothers tag team uh ricky steam the minnesota Oates, wrecking greg Flair. valentine yeah yeah i mean i every basically everyone that any of uh folks anyone that followed the promotion can think we've had some contact with if they were alive when when the website started and even now i don't think i told you this paul but what's kind of cool is even the ones that uh, even the 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 wrestlers that have passed their their children and their wives are still alive and they're friends i'm mm. friends with the wives mm. you know um or the brothers and people may remember jay youngblood who teamed up with ricky steam well i just got with his brother Jay unfortunately passed really prematurely in the '80s, but just the family members are friends now. Yeah, and so that's just that's just amazing. And, and the, the lives that they led, um, the colorful characters, uh, the, the stories are just uh, incredible. And, and the, the really cool thing, Paul, is that they all they did, how they entertained um, the light, the light, town to town, working through injuries. There was no insurance. Tough, uh, t- tough, tough guys. Pretty much worked, you know, sometimes every day and then t- a double shot on Sunday or Saturday. Um, and, you know, it was a very, very close fraternity. I mean, normal people don't do it. Normal people can't do it. You know, you can't be hurting and aching and, you know, injuries and then get up there and do a day of promos where you have to, you have to put that aside and come off as believable to get the people to come to the next town for the next show, uh, and then go out later that night and wrestle. You know that same night that you did did a day of promos, and then the cycle repeats itself over and over yeah. and over and over. Um, but you know they have to be close knit to survive, and unfortunately, um, 
that type of lifestyle did lead to some drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Uh, it's no wonder, uh, you know, a normal body cannot really do that. But a lot of them didn't fall prey to that. Certainly in the in the years we did, or, or not to a large extent. But they had to rely on each other, and that's why it's such a close knit fraternity. And you know, our website um, to be able to be taken into part of that family. Well, you're reconnecting them. Well, it's, it's true, and it took and it took a long time for them to believe that people even cared about them. That, oh that, my gosh! That, even, that they even um, made an impact. This was 30 years ago. I've had many of them tell me that you know I appreciate what you're saying, but people don't real don't all due respect. That's we're not a big deal. We weren't a big deal. We're not a big deal now. And I've managed to 100 percent convince them that that's not true. Yeah. And that's a huge deal. I mean, to me, that makes that makes the website worthwhile. Um, I've had a couple of sort of these seminal moments where somebody that I've told them, hey, you're remembered and you're loved. And when it happens and I see it and then look at them and I said, see, I told you, um, you there's not enough money in the world that would, um, you know, make that uh, up. I mean, that that's just a, that's the gold standard for the gateway if we can do that. And we've done oh. it. Um, and you know, wrestling like everything, it evolves. It's different now, um, but I think anybody, uh, even a lot of the people that do it today, have tremendous respect for the ones that came before. And mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to do: is just highlight um, all the good times that we were able. You know, we didn't have a professional, we didn't have professional teams in the Carolinas and Virginia. Had NASCAR was about the only thing. Um, and they only came to town once or twice a year. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have the just the direct. Um, closeness with the personalities that you got with the rest. So really it was the only game in town. And, um, you know, the, the funny, the, one of the good things, Paul, uh, or kind of the unexpected things is getting people that never saw these people back. And there's not a lot of footage. Unfortunately, um, the mid Atlantic, uh, they made one big mistake. Um, they did not preserve their TV tapings. They taped over them to save money. And so the people can't even I, go. I well, had no idea. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that, you know, we're into, a lot of the other promotions, you'll you'll have the old footage from from the TV. Uh, we have virtually none until you get into the early '80s, and of course, the '70s is what you know. My website partner and I. So there's you can't even say, well, pull up YouTube and watch this. There's a smattering of things that somehow survived, but I mean, there's nothing. You know, my audio tapes is how I'm able to piece together some of the historical things. Wow. But yeah, there's no there's no and yet. By going to the gateway, these people, these young people will swear by it. They'll say, now this is what wrestling really should be like, even though they haven't seen it. Right. But they've seen the interviews. Um, they've seen, you know, just some of the um, uh, the, the um, TV angles, how they were they were plotted out so well, just a perfect story being told. It's captivating. It doesn't matter what yeah. year, how old you are. So that's been really cool, too. Uh, t- um, tell uh, our listening audience what uh, the letters on your license plate. Uh, <laughs> did you see it when I drove up? I did not see it. I'm going to go check it out. When I, well, actually, when, when I um, when I um, when I was Commonwealth's attorney for the one term elected, you get your own plate. You know, I, I think I you know a number is to your seniority. So I, when I when I didn't run for re-election, I had a I had a big decision. I had to I had to get new plates. What what in the world am I going to put on my plate? And um, of course, it's Randolph Macon plate. I got a Randolph Macon plate, but I got to figure out what to put on there. So for about 20 years. I, I got the um, letters R, F L A I R, for Ric Flair, and um, 
it's funny because a couple of times we took the car in for um, repairs and so, or various things. I mean, sometimes I would just go down the road and of course you always worry about, you don't know what somebody in a car, maybe you, maybe you made a maneuver that wasn't the best and they're upset with you. So I would, I'd say it happened three or four times a year. I would just get this loud yell and I'd look outside. I'm thinking, am I going to look at a gun being pointed at me? But it was somebody doing the Ric Flair woo. And then one time I, we, we, we took our car in uh, to uh, Jiffy Lube or somewhere. And the person saw the plate and said, Are you, is this really Ric Flair's car? And I said, it's a Honda Civic. No, no. <laughs> but now I had to, I, I, I changed up, Paul. I went, I thought 20 years was enough. But I didn't know what might be available through DMV, but I actually got what I think is pretty good. It's R I C W O O. It's perfect. Woo. I think that's probably the best. <laughs> I'm not intending to give that up. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I would think about uh, doing that if you didn't have it. Yeah, well, you're, yeah. you're, you're going to have to come up with some other variation. <laughs> woo, yeah, woo, yeah. woo, Rick, maybe. Yeah, I said, well, I wish I could get one more. Uh, one more O, but that's not going to, I think three, two O's is enough. Two's yeah, is perfect. I think it makes its point. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, Mid-Atlantic Gateway, I think if anybody uh, has a love of um, professional wrestling in this area back in the 70s and 80s, uh, even into the 60s a little bit, it's a treasure trove of, um, you know. Oh, there's so much on there. Posters, newspaper clippings, interviews, match listings, um, you know, photos. Uh, I mean, just over 22 years, we've actually had to, archive part of it and, and we've kind of gone to a new um a new more streamlined version but every all the contents there so i mean if you really like that stuff you can get immersed in it it's i, I think we've uh, you know we've we've accomplished our goal in sort of trying to preserve what's out there and anything from here on is gravy i mean um but i think pretty much most of the things that are out there the people that meant a lot to it we've you know we've gotten with we've tried to you know, historically chronicle it accurately and uh, some of the side effects have been really great with you know you know interacting with so many uh, fans that have similar interest in the in the in the people in the sport themselves or the uh, I don't know if it's a sport but you know what I mean sure <laughs> it, it was back in the 70s it, and sure, 80s. it was it was portrayed as that and I think that's that's what maybe is missing a little bit today you just don't have you have the great athletes you have the acrobatics but you don't you don't have that real belief that they're really trying to to beat somebody to the point of um, you know, winning and, and settling a feud versus, uh, you know, showcasing their athleticism. And, right. But it, it, it's, it's evolved. I'm not saying it's, it's worse, um, but it's certainly, um, I'm not sure I would have the, the connection would have been as strong as it was when I grew up and the way it was presented then. Yeah. So that, that's what we're trying to do. So it's been, it's a labor of love. It, it, it is a lot, of, it's time consuming, but we love doing it. And that's the, What's the uh, so it's Mid Atlantic Gateways the Mid Atlantic website? Gateway mm-hmm. okay should be pretty easy to find it's these easy days to just um, just do it just a search for Mid Atlantic Gateway and that's actually the first thing that'll probably pop up on your search um, I think I told you um, uh, Paul I have to brag about it a little bit but I, I just feel like it was pretty cool um, just mainly knowing that we do, we've done something that's made an impact in the in the community and brought people in but. Um, we actually, in 2016, uh, Dick Bourne and my, um, uh, my website partner, uh, who does most, he's the one that makes the site look really pretty and does all the, he's the web master. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, we were actually, uh, brought into the, uh, uh, Mid-Atlantic Legend, Legends Hall of Fame, um, as people that just do a website. It was pretty amazing because <laughs> the, 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 the year we went in, we were, <laughs> we, we were inducted with, 
pretty pretty big folks. Uh, Jimmy Valiant, who actually is a long time uh, boogie woogie man. Uh, he's in the WWE Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, but yeah. been here boogie woogie man here. Um, we had Baby Doll, who was one of the the uh, uh, connected with um, the big boom in the mid '80s uh, with the Horsemen and back and forth with them. Um, Dusty Rhodes, who had passed away, but they they inducted him uh, with Magnum TA being um, in his stead um, to, to to take the induction. We had Road Warrior Animal there, so I mean we're we're getting um, we're induct these website guys get inducted with these. Um, Big, I mean, just names. Su- stupendous names in the business, and they're and they're a bunch of them in the audience. We have Bob Cottle that introduces us for our induction. So, it, it to me, I mean, it was just sort of surreal. But it, it that was sort of the defining moment where I said, you know, it, we did take a lot of time doing this, um, and yeah. But you know, that's how much it, they people they, appreciate that in the business. Oh my gosh, we yeah. must have done a decent job. So yeah, I, I think they deeply appreciate. Yeah, it. so that that was that was really uh, really cool. I want to I want to mention my wife too, Diana, who's really um, put up with, um, and she's not a wrestling fan um, at all. I, I'll tell you a quick story about her when we were dating. Um, I had an in. and I'm lucky that people in business want want to give me free tickets. I don't know why, but I don't turn them down. So um, this was actually when I was a Commonwealth's attorney um, in Sussex, and uh, the, this was in the late 90s when you had the Monday Night Wars with Nitro mm-hmm. and um, Raw going head-to-head. So it was, business was huge. So I could basically get tickets wherever I wanted. So I got like 40 tickets, because um, it was huge then, back in that time period, uh, to, to go down to the Scope. And um, I was you know, dating Diana, and she knew I had an interest in wrestling then, but I said... Um, and I thought it was a pretty big hotshot deal. I said, well, you know, I got tickets to this um, uh, this uh, Monday Nitro that I think everybody wants to go to. And, and, and how about you, you know, a bunch of the law enforcement who come with me? Why don't you, why don't you come on uh, with me? You know, I'll show you around, introduce you to some people. She said, no, I don't have any interest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did a little bit of a, uh, 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 stood back for a second. I said, but bring it to the front. She she is actually um, his. She's allowed me to do a lot of this stuff on on uh, taking a lot of time to do it. And she's actually gotten uh, connected with some of the, the the people in wrestling that I think she really has a um, um, may not be a fan per se, but she's a fan of the people that right, she's right. met. And um, one of the one one of the ones that she has uh, bonded with particularly is Bob Cottle, who was the um, is the voice in our I think. You'll you'll agree for Mid Atlantic Wrestling, one of the no best question. announcers. Uh, he's in in a, in a Raleigh native, and we've been very fortunate to, to strike up a real real close friendship with Bob and his wife. But Bob, he will enjoy talking to to Dick and I. But you can tell wrestling is just part of his life, and for whatever reason, he and Diana have have a bond where he'll say, "Well." Yeah, that's a good thing, Diana. What do you think about? <laughs> so, I mean, they're 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 just a a really uh, interesting pairing, and and uh, she's had a couple of uh, wrestling uh, people that that's kind of seeped in. So they're 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 different folks. They're it's a different um, you know doing what they do. It's just a different um, a unique lifestyle, and and it it brings out some interesting quirks. But bottom line is they're good people. And I think that comes through even to somebody who maybe is not in the uh, um, into the 
nuts and bolts of following the matches, the storylines, right. that kind of thing. But I think so. That's been kind of cool to see. Well, it makes you happy, I imagine. Yeah, Diana's formed those relationships. Well, and, and sometimes I'll have a you know I'll just kind of mess with her. I'll have a little trivia. I'll just see something pop up, and I said, "Let me ask Diana this," or maybe maybe it's a um, a, a picture of the from the youth of one of the wrestlers. And she knows them well enough now that she's really good about, I'll say, mystery wrestler, who is this? I'll just say, Paul Jones. Wait a minute. Yeah, that's right. But how did you know that? Blackjack Mullen. Yeah, that's right. And Dick, and Dick you know, Dick, who, who knows as much as anybody about the 70s wrestling, he'll he'll stumble on some of these. And Diana will just, that's, yeah, that's Paul. She's really good at faces, yeah, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, so. Very cool. All right, last question uh, we ask most of our guests. Yeah. It's, um, you're a talk show host for one time you have an hour and you get to pick your guest a female a male and a musical group and if you're in the stand-up comedy you can pick a comedian as well hmm okay so i knew this was coming because I, I i listened to the listen to the uh, to the show um let's see um i would say male um probably muhammad ali Oh, I was expecting you to say a wrestler. Um, it, I'm, I'm glad you said Muhammad Ali for lots of reasons, but yeah. to include your guest can no longer be with us as well. So, yeah, so that's yeah. okay too. I thought yeah, that was yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I just think he was um, just a cultural phenomenon. Of course, the sports part of it is is interesting. I just remember as a as a young child, even um, in school at Elmont, I remember one of my teachers. I think I was in the sixth grade. Um, this, this was when Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali were getting there. I think this would have been the first of their three matches. And um, she was a big uh, fan of Ali or Cassius. I don't know if he was Cassius Clay then. I think um, he was Ali when he fought yeah, Frazier the first that's right. time. Yeah. Um, but I just didn't, you know, Ali, he was he was sort of had the, I don't know, he, he didn't come across. I like Frazier. I just, he was like. I like both of them. Yeah, I do. Oh, now yeah. I, I think both are just, I, I love them both. But. But as I sort of looked at him, looked at his past, and followed him later through the '70s, um, and then sort of what he meant to the just the worldwide um, appeal, and you know, the, just the, the cultural things that he brought to the table, well, the bravery he displayed right. outside of the ring. Oh, right. Um, and that's that's someone he even came. To, I think you probably know he came to Randolph Macon in the um, I guess it was the late '60s around mm. the draft. I think the issue with the draft. Right. But yeah, he wasn't afraid to. Um, um, put himself out front on things, and um, you combine that with the sports part. That's somebody that I think would be a fascinating. He, he's a top ten American across oh, our yeah. history. Yeah, yeah. Um, female. I, this may go more so towards legal folks, but I think maybe Sandra Day O'Connor. Okay. Um, who's somebody that was a trailblazer um, for her gender. Um, and, and seemingly fairly quiet and humble about all of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember one of the one of the cool things, uh, and that would go toward more some of some of the her legal um, prowess as well. But I remember I was lucky enough. I remember the bar of the U.S. Supreme Court, which in my case means basically I can go up there and get a really good seat. Mm. Out of the most, <laughs> we did that. One of my attorney friends and I went up there, and I was really I felt really good because we were very. You know, we were almost me and you to her. I mean, it was that close, um, and to, to see her before she retired, and um, I just think that she—that's a really cool moment. Yeah, she she brought. I mean, she brought a lot. I mean, the diversity she brought to the court, um, the way she held herself, um, and the things that she must have encountered um, to get there. 
and then once she was there, um, I know they can't talk about, wouldn't have been able to talk about, but so much maybe about in the court. But that that would be something I would, I think would be really interesting. Maybe a little legal heavy, but yeah. Cool. What about a band or uh, musical act? Uh, gee, I, I'm I'm really a um, a child of the '70s as far as uh, uh, musical um, as well. Maybe you know, just going back into the late '60s, early very early '70s, probably the Beatles because mm. they had just 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 so many just so many people in the stratosphere of music all combined at once. And then of course what ultimately broke them up and when I was you know, when I was pretty young, they they were still together churning out hits. Um, but then when they broke up and, and I remember this even better, um, they all went on their singles, um, and then any one of those four just on their singles career as well, um, which they, they all had pretty magnificent careers as singles too. So um Paul McCartney is still touring, yep. and my middle kid is a huge fan of the Beatles. She has since she was a little kid, mm-hmm. and she said, "Dad, can we please go to the Paul McCartney concert?" And I said, "Well, is it anywhere near here?" And of course, it wasn't. We went down to Winston Salem to watch Paul McCartney, and it's—I've been to several concerts in my life. It was—it it blew me away. And he's going to be eighty this month. This was recently. This was uh, two, three weeks ago. Wow. He's, think, he's basically 80 years old when he's performed this concert, and he went for like three hours, 15 minutes, and he never left the stage. Unbelievable. He's unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's crazy. But it, it, it was deeply entertaining. And I'll, I'll tell you, there were little eight-year-old kids there, and there were people in their mid-80s, and everybody was having a, a blast. Well, that just goes to show you the, the, um, the depths of what he's done over a lifetime yeah. and how it's touched. You know, age is really not even a factor. Not, not, not a bit. Yeah. Any stand-up comedians that you're a fan of? Uh, it's not really. Uh, I think I think one of your uh, one of your guests mentions uh, Jerry Seinfeld, which I like a lot. But you know, these aren't really stand-up comics. But the ones that get me the, the most are, are like the the the, uh, the ones that do impressions, hmm. like Rich Little. Oh yeah, he's fantastic. Um, and Frank Caliendo that does the sports. He's a very talented. They they, yeah. they just break me up. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, of course, Rich Little does a lot of the uh, the political things too, which I get into. He he does he does the greatest uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, um, and Ronald Reagan may have been like my second choice on the first. Right, right. Um, uh, interesting tie into Randolph Macon um, again. Uh, Doctor Davis, who was, did such a wonderful job, and Doctor Unger um, at Randolph Macon. But you know, when um, when President Reagan got shot in uh, I guess it was eighty one. Um, somehow they were able to finagle um, a trip of our political science group to the Rose Garden for his first um, appearance back after being shot. Oh wow! And he it was it was with the Japanese Prime Minister, I think. But just just that was that's something I'll always remember too. Yeah, of but, course. Uh, yeah. yeah, but yeah, but uh, boy, uh, Rich looking to a great Ronald Reagan. I I love it when impersonators <laughs> do the impersonation in front of the person. That that has me in stitches every time. Yeah, I'm trying to think who, who there's one of the big politicians that it may have been Reagan that just, you know, I think they enjoy that aspect of it the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, just uh, that's that's a, it's quite a talent and just that they they keep me in stitch probably more than just a straight up stand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for joining. I'm glad my uh, my parents know you, and I'm glad we were able to connect, and I uh, really appreciate. Uh, 
everything we talked about here today. Paul, appreciate you having me on. It's great to talk about uh, Ashland and any Ashland offshoots. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.